Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. In his early 30s, my guest on the podcast today developed lung cancer, a potentially devastating diagnosis with a terrible prognosis. Thankfully, he survived and went on to do amazing things as what he describes as a research evangelist, making the case for early diagnosis of lung cancer and emphasizing the fact that you don't have to have smoked cigarettes in order to develop this awful disease. My guest on the podcast is Dave Bajork. You're very, very welcome to the show. I'm so pleased to be speaking with you today. And the one thing that I noticed about your bio is that you survived lung cancer, or at least you've been treated for lung cancer. That cancer has a bad name in medicine and a bad name in the public because we think of it as a cancer that's very hard to treat. Tell us your journey through that time in your life. Oh, thank you. And first of all, thank you for having me on your program. I really appreciate that. It's great to be here. I, I, as you mentioned, I, I, I did have lung cancer. I was diagnosed when I was 30, 34 years old. I was a non-smoker. Played basketball all the time. I was a healthy young man with three young kids, three young boys who were under the age of five. It was I. What happened was I, I was on a fishing trip with a friend of mine in, in Maine, and I, 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 um, I got really sick, and I came home, and I went to my doctor, and I had pneumonia. And so I thought, wasn't that that's kind of crazy? And my my wife is a nurse, and she was kind of surprised by that. And, and you know, the unfortunate thing is, I, I don't think primary care physicians think to check for something like lung cancer with a healthy young guy who didn't smoke. So I was given my antibiotics and sent on my way. And about six or seven months later, I got pneumonia again. And so I went in, same same thing. I My doctor told me I was you know, exposed to germs and my kids are in school and they're, you know, yada, yada. And same thing, chest x-ray, you have pneumonia, antibiotics. Well, a, a radiologist actually looked at my chest x-ray and and pointed out that it was in the exact same location as the first the first one. And so he suggested I get a, a CAT scan. So I did get a CAT scan, and sure enough, I had a tumor in my lower left lobe. It was a neuroendocrine cancer. And of course, that was terrifying, as everybody knows, when you get that diagnosis and the phone call from your doctor that says you have lung cancer. And it really was the last thing I expected because, it, you know, this, is a, this was 20 years ago. And, and I, but I think the stigma still exists where I might assume that you, you, you cause it yourself because you smoked. So I, I, I didn't see it coming. I, I didn't know what to do. And, Thankfully, I was I was treated at Mass General Hospital. I had a lobectomy, which itself is is a is a is a as I'm sure you know, not a very fun experience. But at the same time, they they did some checking during my surgery and after, and I did not have any spread in my lymph nodes, and so I was good after that. Although the the time in the in the hospital was a week on, on morphine and and all of that was just awful. It was just a terrible experience, but. Because of that, I, I live a life of gratitude now because I had a positive outcome. And I say, well, yeah, it was really several months of really bad. I had lingering pain for many months. I went to the pain clinic all the time. I couldn't. The nerve damage from the surgery was just really bad. And, and it was hard for me to get kind of back to a normal life. But I knew that I had a better outcome than most. And therefore, I just am so grateful for, for that. And I think that that experience really has, it really has informed you know, my life from that point on. Thank you very much for sharing that story, Dave. It's a, it's a difficult story. It sounds to me like there was a long period of treatment and convalescence and a difficult journey for you and for your family. As you say, your children were under the age of five. 
your wife was a nurse, one half wouldn't have understood what was going on. The other half would have known all too well what was going on. So what aspect of your experience sticks out with you? You said your primary care physician wasn't keeping the diagnosis of lung cancer as a red flag in the back of their mind. They had a low index of suspicion, as we say, for lung cancer. And that wasn't great. But were there other aspects of it that were better? What can we learn from how it unfolded for you? I think I have a sensitivity to nursing because my wife is a nurse. And I, what I would say on the positive ex- the side of that experience was the number of amazing nurses that you know took care of me and were empathetic to me. So I wasn't treated as a stigmatized person that, oh, you deserve it because lung cancer is something that people get when you smoke. And I was treated very well and with much compassion. Some nurses in particular, I wish I could remember, but I was I was on those the morphine, you know, during that week, and a lot of it is pretty foggy. But I will say that 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 part of the experience, and then the follow up when I was going to the pain clinic and really trying to solve the mysteries of of you know how do we how do we help this patient with this really bad pain? When I, I ended up taking Neurontin, which is very very interesting, and actually worked. It was the weirdest thing. I you know who knew? So the, so I guess that's what I would say as 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 the experience. I think the negative side was. Everybody asked me if I smoked. And that, that is, you know, that still happens today. I think it still happens today. And I always thought, well, why are you asking me that? And I didn't get mad, such as that I was just annoyed by the fact, like, wait a second, why, if I had breast cancer or, 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 or colon cancer, you wouldn't ask me about my diet or things like that. So why, why you know, why is that a question? So yeah, that was otherwise, overall, it was, you know, that part was a positive experience. You're absolutely right. We still think of lung cancer as a smoker's disease. And of course it isn't for for many, many people. Smoking had nothing to do with the diagnosis. It was something else that was underneath that. How do we change that? How do we make it so that the next time I'm seeing a patient with symptoms that I think are suggestive of lung cancer, it doesn't occur to me that this is just simply a result of their smoking? Yeah, I think it's a really challenging thing that we're, a lot of us advocates are really trying to change. I'm involved with a project now called the White Ribbon Project, which is a grassroots movement of patients and advocates and clinicians and researchers and, and cancer centers, frankly, that you know we're trying to change that public perception of lung cancer and that anybody with lungs can get lung cancer, right? And so given the fact that it's estimated that 20% of new diagnosed uh, cancer patients Lung cancer patients never smoked. That's a big number. If 225,000 Americans get diagnosed with lung cancer, that's a big number. So one of the founders of the White Ribbon Project is a primary care physician at Kaiser Permanente, as it turns out. And his wife was diagnosed with stage three lung cancer. And he was just like you would. You would be, you wouldn't think about it. It didn't, it didn't occur to him. And so he is on a mission to help try to educate through a, a CME program that he that he started at, at Kaiser Permanente to educate um, physicians. But I just think it's a long process. I think it's going to take, uh, we hope that the White Ribbon Project will be that thing that, that kind of helps change. I, I think the damage was done with the Great American Smokeout and all the, the great success we had with the anti-smoking campaigns and when the going after the tobacco companies, but yet that created that stigma, you know, that even exists today. So I think, I think with, as far as primary care physicians, I think, Maybe it's more, you know, looking at family history, you know, of, of the disease or radon or other, you know, other, other particular factors. But 
from our, from my perspective as a as a as as a patient advocate, I I would say I just I just feel like we have to just keep pushing forward because you know one of the premises uh, of the White Ribbon Project is that when a woman gets diagnosed with breast cancer, she is very proud, not happy about breast cancer, but proud and okay to wear a pink ribbon. I have breast cancer. And that doesn't happen with lung cancer patients. You don't proudly put a white ribbon on your shirt and say, I have lung cancer. And, and so that's something that we have to change. There's no shame. There, should, there shouldn't be smoking, smoking shame. And there shouldn't be this shame that you brought it on, your, on yourself or, or this misunderstanding that it's only smokers that get, that, don't, that get lung cancer. But I think if the, you know, I think as you know, the, the, the sooner that we can find lung cancer, because it's a silent killer because you don't get, you know, you don't have symptoms that, you know, throw off the red flags as you suggest. But if we can get it earlier, we're going to be able to save a lot of lives. You're right. And it can present very atypically as you describe. Do you think there's a role for us to be much more proactive in how we teach about this condition in medical school? Message has always been ingrained in our thinking. If you've got a smoker, you got to think about lung cancer. The first time they start coughing for more than a few weeks, you do a chest x-ray, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't think about the 34-year-old basketball player as somebody who is at high risk of lung cancer when they've got odd symptoms that don't make sense, but you think this could be in the differential. How do you think that medical schools could approach this? Is there some way that we could improve this? Or is it down to having biomarkers? Is the answer in the lab or is it, is it in the history taking? Boy, that's a really good question. I, I, I think my first reaction would be that, yes, I think the more that we can help educate students in medical school about some of the things that you talked about. I had a friend who, who was a non-smoker who was a very healthy guy, 44 years old, and he had he kind of a nagging cough. And you, know, you hear the word nagging cough and I had just seen him and I hadn't, didn't really notice it. He's, his voice was a little raspy, but he went in the hospital and sure enough, he was stage four lung cancer and he died four weeks later. Well, that's crazy. So I don't put the blame on, on doctors for, for not seeing that, but I guess maybe from a technology standpoint, maybe that the, ultimately you think of, you know, the possibilities of liquid biopsies and things like that, where you can actually find something early. I mean, I think that's the holy grail, right? I mean, I think. I think that's what that's what we hope for. But in the meantime, I, I guess I until we get to that point, I feel like if even if we can make marginal progress, you know, in in teaching medical students, you know, that 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 can happen. You know, you can you can have a thirty four year old healthy person that didn't smoke have have tumor in his lung. One of the things that I've noticed help people to take in messages that seem to go beyond their prejudices is story. The story that you've just told me is very powerful because it allows me to assimilate your message much better. Are you out there telling the story? Are there other lung cancer patients out there telling the story? How can we help? Yeah, there, there definitely are. I, I mentioned the White Ribbon Project, and that's certainly um, a grassroots movement of, of patients and caregivers and advocates who are you know, really trying to spread that message and trying to bring people together in, in an inclusive way to say anybody can get lung cancer. I'm also involved with interviewing people on a, on a podcast that I started. And I'm, so I am talking with a lot of, of, of researchers. And I, find, I had, I'll tell you an interesting story. I, I agree with that storytelling. I had a, a researcher from the University of, of Pennsylvania who said that she also, as a clinician, felt 
that stigma, you know, of treating lung cancer patients. She talked about her journey, how years ago, lung cancer was not a quote unquote glamorous field to go into as, you know, to do your, to do your fellowship because, you know, it was more of a palliative care sort of option, right? Because there weren't a lot of treatments. But I thought that was an interesting perspective for her to think. I'd never heard a clinician actually, you know, use those words that, you know, we, we kind of feel the same stigma because we are taking care of lung cancer patients. So through my podcast, I'm trying to, you know, integrate that message, you know, into what I do. I just had Dr. Michael Caligiuri on my show, and he's the president of, of City of Hope Hospital in California. And he's actually also the father-in-law of, of, of Heidi and Pierre's daughter, the ones who started the White Ribbon Project. And so he's embraced and he's been super active in, in educating the, the whole departments, the radiation departments and the radiologists and the medical oncology group about this. And so I think that those types of initiatives are going to make a difference. By the way, I, I, I think the more that the clinicians get involved to help us and stand up and share a white ribbon and say, yes, anybody can get lung cancer, that gives hope to patients. And I think there's great power you know, in, in having them join us or cancer centers joining us to say, yes, yes, you matter. You, you are valued as a person. You are valued as a patient. And, you know, we want to help spread that message. We also want to help spread that message. And you're absolutely right. The key is for physicians who have that mindset and patients who are activists to come together on one platform to say, we see how this can be different. We can see how we can change attitudes. We can see how we can make people much more aware of the red flags, which, by the way, are not the typical red flags. They may be red flags that are persistent symptoms of one kind or another or odd, atypical things that your differential of lung cancer should appear somewhere. If you're concerned about somebody who's losing a lot of weight, not, who's not well in general, because it's not a disease just of smokers. Let's get it right. Nobody should smoke. Smoking causes a lot of illness, not just lung cancer, but other things. But smoking isn't the only risk factor here. And our approach to this condition needs to be much more sophisticated in 2021 than it was in 1956 or whenever we started on recognizing that this was a problem. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I, I do feel that there's momentum going in that direction. And this, the, the willingness of a lot of the clinicians to join, to join us to try to spread that word. And I think we're, I'm also just trying to, to make it that it's not just cancer patients, you know, themselves, you know, it's caregivers, it's advocates, it's neighbors, it's your family, it's, it's a cancer center, it's a social worker at a cancer center, it's a in, in the infusion nurse, you know, it's, there's just a big community and we kind of, want to spread this word that it's we're all in this together. We're all in this together because so many people have been impacted by by lung cancer. Maybe you lost someone for, you know to lung cancer. So I, I can't over overemphasize how I feel from a patient perspective when today somebody who who Narjas Duma from the University of Wisconsin posted on Twitter today a message with a big white ribbon and all it said was we have to be in this together. It all starts with us. Anybody can get lung cancer. And it was just so simple and it was just so powerful. But here's this brilliant medical oncologist, you know, treating cancer patients, stepping up, you know, to, to join it. That means a lot to us. Yeah. Congratulations. I think that was a, a huge achievement. From your leadership position as somebody who is trying to drive this message home, do you have hope in the next 
five or 10 years that we are going to see a root and branch difference in the way that lung cancer patients are diagnosed and treated? I am often, my podcast is called The Research Evangelist. And and the word of the Greek word, the meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news. And so, you know, I like to, you know, have a very positive uh, outlook um, and message, you know, in everything that I do. And so I have been in the last few years really emphasizing that we should be shouting from the mountaintops at the advances that have happened in treating lung cancer. Now, that means most of the advances are for later stage lung cancer, isn't that, that's amazing. I mean, there's seven or eight biomarkers for non-small cell lung cancer now that have a targeted treatment and there's immunotherapy treatments and so forth, but it's not really translating down into the earlier stage diagnoses, right? And so um, I, I do have great hope that because of a lot of the advances and a lot of the publicity that's happening and maybe bringing more people and more resources into the study of lung cancer, that we will see a difference. And some of these advances five to 10 years, I I started following liquid biopsy research in 2015 and thinking that it was like pie in the sky. It's like, you know, it was like Dan Haber and Bert Vogelstein and these people were doing this. This I'm like, really? You could actually detect, you know, cancer in blood. And I think fast forward to five years, look where we are now. And I think five years from now or 10 years from now, I can't even imagine because I'm not a scientist, but boy, I'm, th- I'm very hopeful, you know, that, that there'll be, um, you know, advances, you know, that will, that will really, really make a difference. But in the meantime, we'll just keep, you know, we'll just keep doing what we do and, and, and not be ashamed of a diagnosis of lung cancer. I think I wouldn't be in any way decrying the fact that you're not a scientist. It matters not a jot because the reality, the reality is that the difference that you are trying to make will be made by the fact that people absorb your message and absorb it well. The science is progressing anyway. We're going to get the biomarkers for early disease as well as we as well as for late disease. That's that's going to come because there are commercial imperatives to drive that agenda. We know this. But apart from that, it is about getting the message out. And I'm very hopeful, as I'm sure you are, that because of social media, because of in fact what has happened in the last year, where we become so much more connected and it becomes so natural for you and I to be having a conversation across these various time zones. And, and the fact that the doctors of the future are, and the patients of the future are going to be very different. They are going to know a lot more because they're going to be more connected. Uh, science will spread much faster. Messages will spread much faster. I think we have reason for hope. Do you see that way? I do. I do. And I agree with you on the, uh, you know, with social media. When you use properly. You know, I, I love Twitter. And I think if when Twitter is used the way that Twitter was designed to be used and not in the divisive ways that it, 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 it tends to happen, but used the way it's supposed to be used, very powerful. And we've been able to connect people. Like you said, I can connect with anybody in the world, like, like instantaneously. It, it made me think of something. It, one of the messages that we, we, when we talk about the fact that anybody with lungs can get lung cancer. So that means I could walk next door to my neighbor's house and ring their doorbell and and mention to them, like, you could get lung cancer. You, Amy, you, Amy, you could get lung cancer. Well, I don't smoke. You could get lung cancer. Think about that. Think about any any person, literally. I got lung cancer. I have no connection to smoking. So literally any person can get lung cancer, right? So that means if we can actually get people that are not just the cancer patients and their families to understand that you're at risk. 
you could potentially be at risk. It could be you could be the next person that goes to your doctor with a nagging cough, or your husband, or your your children, and actually get a diagnosis of lung cancer. Right? Anyway, I I I do think there's there's a powerful message there that we can you know, we can spread using tools like social media to to emphasize those things. You're absolutely right, and. A very dear friend of the Journal of Health Design, Rod Ritchie, is a male breast cancer patient. And he says the same thing. Anyone with breast tissue can get breast cancer. 1% of patients with breast cancer are men. And you can imagine what it must be like for a man. Pink ribbon, etc. It's not, it's, it's almost become synonymous with being female. But in fact, anyone with breast tissue, and all men have breast tissue, can get breast cancer. You're right. Anyone with lungs can get lung cancer, regardless of whether they smoke or not, regardless of how old they are, because this disease doesn't differentiate between age. It's not written somewhere in a tablet of stone that only people at age 50 who are smokers are likely to get this disease. It's, it's, it's not like that. Where to from here, Dave? We're doing a lot of work and would love to support you in what you're doing. Where to from here? In brass tax terms, I think for for me personally, I will continue, you know, it, in doing the work that I'm doing. I'm also doing some consulting with a company called Grit Health, um, G R Y T, and really trying to help them with what we're calling research advocacy, and really, you know, trying to you know to educate more people around you know the role of of research and to be to be more comfortable and learn more you know to be educated so i think um from a from a brass tax i'll i will continue to to bring people together to bring people to my podcast to to rally the community through the white ribbon project which and we're active on twitter um and instagram we're building a website we're uh we're going to be active on facebook soon and just for your for your listeners the, the i, I want to say that the Supporting the White Ribbon Project, and it was what caught my attention. It was kind of like the Humans of New York story, if you if you're familiar with that. It really was like showing faces around the country, all over North America, for now, and, and a couple of countries in in, uh, in Europe. That here I am, stayed proudly with a with a ribbon, but it was the ribbon was made by a husband, Pierre Onda, who carved. He's a doctor. He's his in his part time. He likes to carve things out of wood, so he actually literally made a wooden ribbon. It's like two feet long. So Hattie could put on the front door to empower her to tell the world I have lung cancer. And people started noticing on social media and said, can I get one of those? And they've made over 550 ribbons out from by hand and shipped them at their own cost all over the place. And, and a group in Florida built a couple hundred and, the, and now people in Canada are building them. And it, But the story is, you love stories. It, the story, these are not mass produced in, in China. These are made by hand, handcrafted, cut, sanded, painted, and delivered with a handwritten note on the back with love from Pierre and Heidi. And the power that somebody gets that when they receive that, I received one. When I received that ribbon, I immediately felt part of it because the, the love was transferred from that, that couple in Denver, Colorado to me here in Boston, Massachusetts. So that's the power that I'm, I'm so hopeful that more people will find out about the White Ribbon Project and, and get involved to. You know, it's, it's a grassroots, unbranded, un, un, it's inclusive. We're not raising money. We're not, it's literally grassroots. It's the most amazing grassroots thing I've ever been involved with. That's a fantastic story. And thank you so much for sharing. I see your point. I mean, if you receive something 
that's made with so much love and energy and labor and at somebody's cost to send it to you. It must really feel like you're being embraced by those people. You are supported. You are valued. You didn't want to become part of this community, but now you are. You just got diagnosed with lung cancer. Here's your white ribbon. There are hundreds and thousands of us out here who will support you on this journey because we've been there. We are all, we're all there with you. It's a very powerful story. And, and, if it, it, and I, I'm making sure being as part of this project that that remains the same. It's some, I joke about this, Amoy, is that I, I joke that someday I want to see that white ribbon in the, in the Smithsonian next to Archie Bunker's chair or, or Fonzie's jacket because that original ribbon is everything that goes beyond that. You, if you want a ribbon, you have to accept the responsibility of receiving it. And are you going to take action? It's not going to go in a closet. You're, what are you going to do? What can you do to be part of it? And so I don't ever want to lose track of that part of the story because otherwise I think it just becomes another, another commercial venture, but this will never be that. <laughs> so, and you don't have to, like I said, you don't have to be a cancer patient, you know, to be part of it. You know, you, you can, you can, yeah, anybody can get involved. So it's, it's, it's very exciting. Thank you for letting me share about that, by the way. I, I do. I really appreciate that. I'm very grateful. We're delighted to do it, Dave. Where else can people find you? How can we, they connect with you? How can they support your cause? What you're doing is so very important. Uh, we will put a lot of this in the show notes, but is there something that you wanted to mention while we're on air? Oh, sure. I am the research evangelist. So anybody can just Google. If you Google the research evangelist, you're only going to find me because who else is going to be the research evangelist? And by the way, it's evangelist is not in the religious sense. I don't want to make. I want to make sure that's clear. It's really evangelizing is to me is just shouting from the mountaintops, right? It's bringing the good news. So people can find me. I have a website called it's it is literally researchevangelist.com, and through that they can find the work I'm doing. I'm you know I'm, I'm on Twitter at Bjork Five and. I'm easy to find, put it that way. I, I am out there. So I, I, I do appreciate uh, sharing that information with your listeners. And, and I'm happy to connect with people anywhere around the world because um, I also like to give back and help others as well. So anything that I can do to help you or others, I just believe in, in doing good work and, and surrounding myself with good people. Dave, your research evangelist, it's been a complete honor speaking with you. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your energy. Thank you for your podcast. Thank you for all that you're doing to help people in the future who are going to have this condition. But more than that, I think thank you for changing the way we approach healthcare. What you are doing will not only change our approach to lung cancer, but to many, many other conditions which are similar. And for that, we would be delighted to keep up with your journey and let's have another conversation very soon. Thank you very much. And, I, and thanks again for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you do as well. You're very welcome. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.